add my welcome to you. Um, like Matt said, my name is Mark Christensen, and it is a joy, despite a, a busy week of traveling and early mornings and sitting in airports, uh, it is a delight to be here with you to sit under God's Word. So if you would, please open up to the book of Exodus, chapter 5. That's where we'll be picking up again this morning. In J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Hobbit, a small hobbit named Bilbo Baggins finds himself getting looped into a large journey that would take him far from his home, the Shire, the only place he had ever really known and loved. He was recruited by a band of dwarfs as a thief due to his small stature and his ability to move quickly, and Bilbo ultimately seems to be in over his head for much of their adventure. After being separated from the rest of the group, Bilbo encounters the creature Gollum, and later a large group of goblins who are not only chasing them, but who are standing in the way of the exit of the tunnel they needed to leave. Finally, we see Bilbo escaping through this tunnel to the other side of the mountain where he gets reunited with his adventuring group, excited to be back together, enjoying their fellowship once again. Not long after escaping that first trial, do they find themselves in a second trial. After one affliction, after one fiery circumstance, they're dropped into, in the middle of, a band of wolves who had sensed their movements and were gathering now to surround the travelers. And here's what Tolkien writes explaining their fiery circumstance. Bilbo cried, What shall we do? What shall we do? Escaping goblins to be caught by wolves, he said. And it became a proverb, though we now say, out of the frying pan, into the fire, in the same sort of uncomfortable situations. Much like the journey of Bilbo and company, what you're going to see this morning in our text is a man and a people who are going from one trial to the next, out of the frying pan, into the fire. From one degree of affliction to another. Following the end of chapter 4 last week, things are looking pretty good for Moses and the people of Israel. Moses obeys, the people of Israel believed. Their obedience to what God had said was faith-stirring to recount and meditate upon. But now the story moves forward and the plot thickens. What will they do? So that's where we turn to our text here this morning. This is God's word that is able to speak into unbelieving and cold and dead hearts in the face of affliction. So I invite you to stand with me as I read Exodus chapter 5. This is God's holy word. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, 
Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to them, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you still must deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they had said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Let's pray. Father, it's in these fiery circumstances, trials of differing degrees that we are tempted to forget you, to look away from you, to trust in ourselves, to trust in other things that might give us seeming advance in the near future. Father, I'm aware that there might be many people here this morning who are very tired, um, afflicted, whether it's through illness or difficulties in the home or in work. So Father, I pray that your strength this morning uh, would be evident uh, in our weakness, that people might be able to look to you and not to the preacher, the servants, the music leaders, Father. Um, pray that our eyes would be fixed on you um, as we all express our need to hear from you this morning. So we pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, feel free to be seated. <coughs> like Moses and Aaron, the people of Israel you're going to be pressed with having to reckon with the fork in the road when a trial comes knocking at your door. How are you going to respond? How are you going to act? What are you going to turn from, and what are you going to cling to? I believe that God wants us not to forget this morning this important truth. 
God sends fiery trials to test the genuineness of your faith. God sends fiery trials to test the genuineness of your faith. So from this text this morning, we're going to unpack two guiding headings. First, the ignorance of unbelief. (coughs) And then we'll move to the testing of your faith. So first, the ignorance of unbelief. The story picks up in this chapter (coughs) with Moses and Aaron going to Egypt to stand before Pharaoh. And whether Moses has ties still in the royal court from his upbringing or not, what we do see is that Moses and Aaron did actually stand before Pharaoh, just as God said would happen. Exodus chapter 3, verse 10 says, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh. Thanks, Caleb. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Ryan, last week, if you were here, had given us a definition of faith, which said, Faith is taking God at his word, no matter your feelings, leaving the results to God. And we saw at the end of chapter 4 last week that Moses and Aaron were acting in faith. God said, go back to Egypt. So Moses goes back to Egypt. God said, take in your hand this staff with which you'll do the signs. Moses took the staff of God in his hand. God told Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So Aaron met, uh, went and met him at the mountain of God. God told Moses that when he met with Aaron, he was to speak to him all the words that God had told him at the burning bush. And that's exactly what Moses did. The text first tells us what God said to do, and it later explains what happened. Moses did what God had said to do. This was the pattern in chapter 4. Does this pattern continue here in chapter 5? I think so. But we do see a different result. Surely still terrified, Moses was being called to go before the king of Egypt who had wanted to kill him after Moses had prefigured that deliverance of Israel by killing the Egyptian in chapter 2. Yet Moses still went, scared and all. This required from Moses faith firing on all cylinders. Verse 1 says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Just as God gave the instructions in 4, 22 and 23, so Moses did. Though you might, some might frame this as a polite request that Moses is giving to Pharaoh. Hey, Pharaoh, I know you are super busy uh, ruling Egypt, this kingdom. You've got a lot on your plate, but would you be willing to let around uh, 600,000 of your servants go that they might go and worship their Lord? Just thought I asked, no worries if not. No one's saying that against a world superpower. What Moses says is, Pharaoh, let the people loose. Send them out from here. Moses doesn't offer this polite request, but rather he makes a bold demand from a differing authority. And Moses knows what the consequences could be for someone who does not obey God's commands. After almost being put to death in chapter 4, verse 24, as they are on the way, Moses knows that disobeying God earns his punishment, being cut off from life and subjected to death. That's why Moses appeals to Pharaoh, 
very firmly in chapter 5, verse 3. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Life is at stake here for Moses, Aaron, and the people of Israel. Obedience is required of them. But this divinely delivered demand from God through Moses and Aaron is stopped without any thought from Pharaoh. Pharaoh mockingly replies in verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh's arrogant question and denial here is telling. He does not view himself in any way subject to the king of Egypt. He says, why should I obey the Lord's voice over my own? And notice that he has identified the key question here in the book of Exodus. Exodus addresses the question, who is the Lord? And we've been telling you that as we preach through Exodus, the purpose is that the people of Israel might know the Lord and that we subsequently might as well. Knowing the Lord is not a matter of acquiring enough knowledge about him. It's not about just being able to say all the right things about him. Knowing the Lord is about whether you are in a right relationship with him or not. Recognizing his authority and acting in obedience with all his requirements out of a heart that knows what he says is best. Do you know the Lord? Yet, in Pharaoh's eyes, life in Egypt was all about being in a right relationship with him and his oppressive demands. The Pharaoh in ancient Egypt was viewed as a god and the, in the eyes of the Egyptians, and surely the Pharaoh would have also believed this. So what he says in response to Moses' demand is that whoever this Lord is, surely he isn't going to get the final say in my court. What Pharaoh is missing here, though, is that this isn't a battle of supremacy between two different deities. What Pharaoh says versus what the God of the Hebrew says. What Allah says versus what the true God says. What Buddha says versus what the Lord God has said. Rather, instead of opposing deities, this is an outright denial of the divine God who put breath in Pharaoh's lungs and sovereignly placed him in his position of power by his mighty hand. What Pharaoh is missing is that the God of the Hebrews has a sovereign plan that he's orchestrating for the good of his people and the glory of his name. And Pharaoh had a specific role to play in this plan. Exodus chapter 9, verse 16 says, But for this purpose, Pharaoh, I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. This is divine comedy. Pharaoh doesn't believe in the Lord, nor in his power over all things. God declares that he's going to use Pharaoh, the God-denier, the God-hater, to make his own name glorified in all the earth. Plans for evil thwarted by God's plans for good. Plans for destruction and oppression redirected to fulfill plans of righteousness and deliverance. God surely writes the best stories. Maybe you've interacted with someone or engaged with someone with God's word, calling them to repentance and to obey what God says. Yet, they scoff at you and say, 
that's all good and fine for you to believe, but I don't believe that, and therefore that doesn't apply to me. What do we do then? Do we believe that the Lord is Lord over all things in the earth, or just over the spiritual things and the believers? Do we believe that God's word only applies to Christians? Absolutely not. Because we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, we therefore we go into our neighborhoods, our workplaces, the public square, proclaiming it to people, uh, the message of salvation to people with dead, ignorant, and unbelieving souls. Unbelief is always ignorant and foolish. Unbelief is not merely an intellectual problem, but it's first a spiritual problem. People who refuse to acknowledge the living God still defy him at every turn despite their unbelief. The standard of God's law for them still remains, and they fall short in their unbelief. We read that in Romans 1, that God's eternal nature, power, has been clearly perceived since the beginning in the things that have been revealed to us. It's stamped on the hearts and the minds of everyone. Everyone is without excuse. The world knows God, but does not honor him or give thanks to him, and they suppress the truth about him. None of this is passive unbelief. It's active. There is always something actively rebellious about unbelief. Disobedience to what God has commanded perpetuates ignorance. They make the claim that they don't know God or his commands, and yet he has clearly revealed himself in the world and in his word. But as you know, I hope you know well, this ignorant unbelief is not just a cancer among unbelieving people. Unbelief is a cancer that can fester within your heart as a Christian as well. Scholar Alec Modier says, It could be said that the root of all disaster in the Christian life is the failure to hear and believe what the Word of God says and to act accordingly. Failing to hear and believe God's Word then and to let the Word have its intended effect in your actions is sin and is the root of all our sin and disobedience. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 and 16, Peter writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Since we've been saved from the enslaving death that we once lived in, don't give in to your former passions. Believe that since God has called you, he will also give you the transforming grace to be holy in all your conduct. And then act on it. Take steps towards that holiness. Give yourself to a missional community or a discipleship huddle that can help keep you accountable, help you to hold on to God's promises as you fight for faith. Due to Pharaoh's ignorant unbelief, he devises a plan to stand in opposition to Moses. As you continue to read in verses 4 through 9, but the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. So Pharaoh declares to the taskmasters of the people and the Israelite foremen that they would no longer have straw to make bricks. And then verses 8 and 9 says, But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. 
lazy. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. If Pharaoh were to let the people go and serve the Lord in the wilderness, he would have been acknowledging the power of God over him. And that would have been a contradiction to the power of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's power over his servants. Who has the right to determine how these people are going to live? Pharaoh seeks to take control by increasing the people's burdens by not giving them straw any longer to make the bricks, by not reducing their quota. The bricks that the Israelite slaves were forced to produce were made of a red clay gathered by the Nile River. Chopped up straw was then mixed in with the clay to help the building brick, binding the bricks together when they're set out in the sun to dry. So not being provided with that binding agent and still being required to produce the same number of bricks in the same amount of time was a daunting punishment. They would now not only have to keep up with the quota, but they'd also have to find and scavenge up stubble from the straw that was already harvested. What was once provided for them is no longer a given. Pharaoh claims in verse 8 that the people are idle and lazy, that they need increased burdens to keep them busy from dwelling on hopes of deliverance from slavery. People of Israel had rejoiced at the end of chapter 4 that the Lord had seen and heard their affliction. And they knew that Moses and Aaron were going to appear before Pharaoh to declare God's plan for them to be delivered out of Egypt. But Pharaoh had hoped that by increasing the people's burdens that he could drive a wedge between Moses and the people. If Pharaoh turns up the heat of their afflictions in response to Moses and Aaron's demands for deliverance, he could anticipate that the people would no longer listen to these Israelite leaders. Because if they continued to follow Moses' mission of deliverance, it would only make matters worse for them. When the Egyptian taskmasters and the Israelite foremen went to relay this news to the Hebrew slaves, we once again see the authority of Pharaoh pitted against the authority of God, the Lord. Verse 10 says, So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. In Exodus chapter 4, 21, we're, seen, uh, we're shown the first, Thus says the Lord, out of 400 occurrences in Scripture. Moses repeats what the Lord had commanded him to say before Pharaoh in chapter 1, uh, in verse 1, chapter 5. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. So we have thus says Pharaoh versus thus says the Lord. So would they attribute ultimate authority to Pharaoh and his word? Or would they give ultimate authority to the word of the Lord? So after seeing the ignorance of Pharaoh's unbelief, we can now turn our eyes to the testing of faith of Moses, Aaron, and the Israelites. So point two, the testing of your faith. Unfortunately, we see that due to the increased burdens and the fiery afflictions that the people are now experiencing, Moses, after Moses and Aaron approached Pharaoh, they didn't turn to the Lord as they previously did in chapter 4. The faith of the Israelites was being tested. The same God they had worshipped at the end of chapter 4, they now have seemed to forgot. 
This is a, um, after the Hebrew foreman had come out from meeting with Pharaoh in chapter 4, verses 15 through 19, they see Moses and Aaron standing there, and they spit in their face, on the face of their deliverers, saying in verse 21, The Lord look on you and judge, because you make us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. This is that stark contrast that we see in the lives of the Israelite people. They were accepted by Israel in the end of chapter 4, and now they have been they have rejected their deliverers. They literally say that not only are you not our deliverer, you've played a part in our eventual death as slaves due to these increased afflictions. Moses, Aaron, leave us alone. Look at all you've done, all the help that you've provided. You've only brought trouble. You've betrayed us. Now we're going to die because of you. The deliverers that God had given the people they now rejected. But the people of Israel had false expectations due to their selective hearing. According to chapter 4, verse 30, Moses and Aaron had told the people everything that God had spoken to Moses at the burning bush, including the part where the Lord said, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And to a small extent, I understand what they might have heard in that. When you're enslaved, and afflicted for so long, and you're told that God has actually seen your afflictions, he's heard your cries, wouldn't you be expecting for that to come? Wouldn't you be looking forward to that? Moses and Aaron seek to command Pharaoh to let people go, and it only results in things getting worse. Who is this deliverer? Who is this God? Pastor Tim Keller insightfully says, the stakes are high here. Suffering will either leave you a much better person or much worse than you were before. Trials and troubles in life, which are inevitable, will either make you or break you. But either way, you will not remain the same. The stakes are high. What will you do when you reach a trial, an affliction in life? There's a fork in the road here. One way leads to the obedience of faith, no matter your feeling, leaving the results to God. And the other way proceeds towards grumbling, bitterness, and unbelief. I have a friend who became a Christian when he was in high school. And after a mentor that he looked up to had shared the gospel with him, he began reading his Bible every single night very consistently. And I remember when he was sharing his testimony with me, he said, Soon after I started reading my Bible, I was given a significant injury. And then my house also burned down. Is this connected to me reading my Bible? He received a trial with an affliction dropped on top of it. Young in his faith, he wondered if the Lord was bringing this upon him. His newfound faith was being tested. Would he look to the Lord and trust his word? Or would he turn away when the fires of affliction get turned up that rip away the comforts that he had held so tightly to? Now praise the Lord that this brother held fast to God's word amidst these trials. But when afflictions and trials rise, it is there where you are at that moment, not in another place or at another time, that we may learn to love 
God. Right there where it seems like he is not at work, where his will seems obscure or frightening, where he's not doing what we expect him to do, where he seems to be most absent, it is there and nowhere else that is the appointed place for faith. If faith does not go to work there, it will not go to work at all. So when we look to Scripture, nowhere in the Bible are you ever going to see untested faith. Adam in the garden had his faith tested when he gave in to eating the fruit that Eve had handed to him. Abraham had his faith tested when he was commanded to offer his own son Isaac as a sacrifice to the Lord. Jonah had his faith tested when God instructed him to go to Nineveh for the second time after the first time he disobeyed and went to Tarshish. Jesus, as he sat and prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, had his faith tested when he knew that he was reaching his final hour and he must be crucified for the sake of the sins of the world. Would he obey his Father's will? Thankfully, yes. Jesus' faith in his Father's will was resolute, confident in his Father's plan. Continuing on in the epistles, <coughs> Stephen in the book of Acts had his faith tested when he recounted the story of the Old Testament before a council of people who were seeking to stone and kill him. Again, commentator Alec Modier says, testing has its place and purpose. And this applies not only to the outward trials of adversity and circumstantial difficulties, but also to the individual realities, besetting sins, temptation, and the ceaseless warfare of the spiritual life. Testing here for Moses had its place and purpose. How would Moses respond to Pharaoh's hard heart, the people's grumbling, and his seeming failure to deliver? Moses, in verses 22 and 23 to end the chapter, turns to the Lord saying, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Notice how Moses pinpoints the cause for their suffering in God and in his plan. Moses obviously has still a difficult time understanding God's timing to deliver his people. We end this chapter with Moses having or with Pharaoh having a hard heart, just as the Lord had said. Moses did his job as assigned by God. Pharaoh didn't budge from his unbelief. The people grumbled, and Moses came and brought his cares before God. The mission that Moses had been sent on has not yet resulted in the freedom he expected, but rather the conditions have worsened for the people of Israel. Moses' words here are daring to speak before God. At first glance, you might read this, and see this as Moses' complaint before God. But I think if you read the whole chapter together, you see that Moses here is caught up in bewilderment of the day. You've commanded me to do something I was frightened to do. You told me what to say. It didn't happen. The people hate me, and they say that I will not be their deliverer. Whether it is Moses' complaint or him bringing his bewilderment before God, what is clear is that Moses took his cares to the right person. He walked down the right avenue when being faced with trials and afflictions. How can a divinely authorized mission to deliver lead to greater suffering? We must 
realize that God's purposes do not always fall before us in the way that we expect them to. Maybe you're in a season of praying for a clean bill of health from an illness or disorder that remains with no promise of when that will leave and that healing might come. Are you in a long season of caring for a young child or for an elderly parent when there seems like there's no knowing of when this difficult season is going to change? Do you have a relationship with a loved one that has gone from bad to worse and you don't know how to proceed or what to say? You feel like you're walking in God's will, but every time you take a step up to bat and you swing, you keep striking out. Take heart, brothers, sisters. God is wanting to get your attention. As C.S. Lewis once said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Let the pain you feel in your affliction and in your trial when it comes to be the catalyst to set your gaze once again upon the faithful God who's working all scenes of your life for your greatest good in him. And he's going to give you the strength to glorify him. The purpose of suffering is seen not in the cause, but in the results. Where you look makes all the difference with how it goes with your soul. Faith is always going to be tested by suffering, trials, affliction, and discipline. And the scriptures are not silent about your suffering in and through these things as a Christian. There are four passages here that I'm going to share of many in Scripture that will highlight for us the response that we should have as Christians to afflictions in life. So number one, believing that God speaks to us in the midst of suffering, the Apostle Paul knew that the Thessalonians were believers precisely because their faith in God's Word was tested through that suffering. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14 says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For your brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Believing that God speaks to us in the midst of our suffering. Second, our trials give us an opportunity to share in Christ's sufferings. Peter reminds us when he says that we shouldn't think of trials as strange, um, that is separated from normal life. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Therefore, let the ones who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Our trials give us an opportunity to share in Christ's sufferings. Number three, the testing of our faith by trials produces steadfastness. James instructs us, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, 
that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Number four, God's fatherly discipline is for our good. Submit to it and see what he might be teaching you. The writer of the Hebrews reminds us that educational discipline is inseparable from being a beloved child of the Father. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there in whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which, you've, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God's fatherly discipline is for our good. Submit to it and see what he might be teaching you. Let these four texts, the many others that are found throughout Scripture, let them serve you in your suffering. Hold fast to God's word, despite what Pharaoh might be trying to stomp out in your life. Be attentive to the way that the fiery trial is refining you, shaping you more into the image of Christ as you learn to suffer like he did. Let that same fiery trial propel you forward in making you resolute and steadfast, not easily shaken or thrown overboard in the winds and waves of life. And lean in to what God might be teaching you when you are suffering because of your own sin. Let that discipline lead you towards godliness as you pray for strength and the resolve to obey all of God's good commands. The biblical writers make clear the necessary purpose of trials in the Christian life. They're ultimately going to be worked out for our good. And as I have gotten older, as I have seen the little bit of life that I have, I've come more to appreciate the men and the women who have suffered through incredible trials, only have to have their faith strengthened because of those trials. And some of those men and women are sitting in this room. To weather the storm with faith when trials come or when things go from bad to worse is a beautiful thing to behold. For in the end, you can look back and see that God's hand was upon you the whole time. He held you fast as you looked to him. One of these beloved saints who is such a helpful example of faith through suffering is Elizabeth Elliot. In a tribute article written about Elizabeth's life, one author writes this, and we'll close with this. Elizabeth fell in love with and married a man named Jim Elliot, whose missionary martyrdom at the hands of the Aka Indians catapulted her both into grief and fame. As a new widow with a toddler, Elizabeth moved in with the fierce tribe that killed her husband, longing to show them the love of Christ. This single act became the most celebrated and criticized of her life. But a closer look at her story reveals, <coughs> reveals that most of Elizabeth's time on the mission field, first as a single woman, then as a married woman, then as a widow and a single mother, was anything but celebratory. It consisted largely of confusion, loss, and turmoil. Elizabeth also suffered the death of a second husband in her middle age. Acute loneliness in her many years of singleness 
and eventually a slow and cruel death by dementia. But her sufferings are not meant to be the pole star. It is the way she suffered that makes her such a compelling model for us today. She suffered with trust and hope in a good God who makes no mistakes. And here's what Elizabeth wrote. It depends on our willingness to see everything in God, receive all from his hand, accept with gratitude just the portion and the cup he offers. Shall I charge him with a mistake in his measurements or with misjudging the sphere in which I can best learn to trust him? Has he misplaced me? Is he ignorant of things or people which, in my view, hinder my doing his will? The secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. We can only know that eternal love is wiser than we, and we bow in adoration of that loving wisdom. So when in your trials, or when the heat gets turned up, do you charge God with the measurements that he makes and the timing he provides? Or do you receive all things from his hand with gratitude? In your trials, do you believe that God is ignorant of not seeing Pharaoh in front of you who is ignorantly acting in unbelief? Or do you unwaveringly trust that God will protect you and keep you and ultimately deliver you? When a trial comes your way, do you choose to patiently wait for the salvation and the mercy of the Lord? Are you able to echo what Elizabeth Elliot says? The secret's Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Christ came into this world to suffer and die for you so that you wouldn't be alone in your suffering, but that you'd have the hope and the power, life-sustaining power of the Spirit necessary to keep the eyes of your faith fixed on him. So it's there there in that trial that the genuineness of your faith will clearly be seen. When faced with a trial that seems to go from bad to worse, from the frying pan and into the fire, take that opportunity to remember the grace and the mercy of God that he shouts to us through his word and by his spirit that we might glorify him. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are the one who has spoken to us, that we can trust your word, that we can cling to it, and that we can have others encouraging us, us encouraging others on this road of life. Father, I pray that, and I confess that it's often easy to drift, to let the distractions come in, cause us to not believe your word. Father, I pray that as we remember your mercy your grace this morning as we partake in communion together. That we would be able to proclaim as we eat that bread, drink that cup. Father, we believe that help our unbelief. We know that the testing of our faith through trials is ultimately going to come for our good, for your glory. So it's in your name, your precious life-sustaining name we pray. Amen.